Well, my name is Greg. I'm one of the pastors here. And I want to just share with you a story where a few years ago, I took my family to Yosemite for a trip, a family vacation. And we're driving along the Yosemite Valley when we come across this, this lookout point, just beautiful panoramic view of the Yosemite Valley. And here's a picture of that very moment. Uh, we got out of the car. And as we're looking at this beautiful view of the valley, I, I saw this as a teaching moment. And I asked my kids, my son Evan was five at the time, my daughter was three. I said, hey kids, you see all this? Do you know who created all of this? And my son, five years old, he, he kind of hesitated a little bit. Then he said, God? I said, absolutely. Isn't God amazing? Isn't he amazing? My son goes, yeah. But I almost said, Africa Bambata. I said, Africa Bam who? He said, you know, the creator of Zulu Nation who influenced the spread of hip-hop throughout the world because of his inspiration from guys like DJ Cool Herc and Cool DJ D. I said, what? Who taught you how to talk like that? And I learned what he told me was because he just joined a hip-hop team at the time, they were teaching him the history of hip-hop. And it was on his mind, and he was trying to memorize all this stuff. And so from that day forward, I, you know, I, I read a little bit about the history of hip-hop and what my son was learning. And here's something I learned. Here's what some of the founding fathers of hip-hop will tell you. They'll tell you that although hip-hop existed in the 70s, but being very limited to just a few group of guys, it really began to spread and take off from 1977 on. Why? What happened in 1977? Well, in 1977, someone flipped the switch, like literally. July 13th, 1977, New York City, there was, there was a storm, and lightning struck. And three times it struck some of the transmission lines there in New York City, threatening to overload Con Edison's system. Con Edison, Con Edison was the power provider for New York City, and so... To spare you all the technical details, you could read about this. They had to flip some switches quickly in order to keep the system from overloading. And the system operator who was on duty that night had to do it quickly. But here's the one detail. They had to be flipped in order. And he flipped the wrong switch. And in that one action, a 230,000 volt connection with New, with, with New Jersey closed. And their system overloaded, and just like that, at 9.36 p.m., the entire Con Edison system that provided power to New York shut down, and for the next 25 hours, the city was in darkness, no power. Now, what happens in darkness? Well, not a lot of good happens in the dark, except some people will tell you hip-hop happens in the dark. See, as people started to loot and go into stores and take everything and anything they could, there were many poor people who could never afford DJ equipment who saw this as their opportunity to break into electronic stores and take for themselves turntables and DJing equipment. And the forefathers of hip-hop will tell you from 1977 on, all of a sudden the power to make music was now in the hands of people all throughout New York City. And from then on, you see this explosive growth of the hip-hop movement. You know, I was uh, thinking about that. That's amazing. That one small action can impact the entire world, can influence the entire world to the point where hip-hop now is in every corner of the world, even till this day. One small action. 
Well, I want to show you today from the scriptures how one action brought death to the entire world. And then I want to show you how one death brings life to the entire world. Okay, would you guys join me as we open up in a word of prayer, then we're going to ask the Lord to lead us into the word. And so God, we want to take this moment to, to really invite you into this place and ask that you would be our teacher, not the guy on stage. We don't care about his opinions. And right now what we're looking for is we want your truth. And I pray that you would convict us of what is true. God, you know the desperation that I feel right now just standing here before these people. Lord, I'm with them. Lord, I want to see Jesus. I want to see Jesus lifted high. And so we pray that you would open up our eyes, the eyes of our hearts, illuminate the scriptures so that we can really see Jesus revealed. And so, Lord, we give you our hearts and our minds. Make this time yours. So we ask this together in one voice. We pray in the name of Jesus. We all say, amen, amen. So the point of this series, we're calling it Jesus B.C., Jesus revealed in the Old Testament. And the purpose of this is to show that Jesus isn't just a New Testament figure like a lot of us take him to be. He's not a New Testament character. Jesus, we'll see all throughout the scriptures, is at the heart of every scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, from creation to the cross and beyond. This whole book points to who Jesus is, even in the Old Testament. I like how Glenn Scrivener puts it. He says, you could take any Old Testament passage, and you'll either find Christ present or promised or patterned in that scripture. What do we mean by that? He's either present, promised, or patterned. Well, well, in some scriptures, you'll find in the Old Testament that Christ is present. It's what theologians call a theophany, an appearance of God. Or some people get specific and call it a Christophany, an appearance of Christ in the Old Testament where he appeared to people in some physical form. Like, for example, you, you take the story of uh, Jacob in Genesis 32. You guys remember Jacob starts wrestling with this man, and he's, he's begging this man for blessing. And as they're wrestling, at some point, the man renames Jacob. What does he change Jacob's name to? To Israel. He says, you shall now be called Israel. And when he realizes who he is, he realizes it's God. Here on earth, I'm wrestling with God. And so in, in all of that moment, he renames that place where they wrestled. Genesis 32 verse 30 says this. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, it is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. In other words, he's realizing no one should be able to see God face to face and live, and yet he spared my life, and in honor, he renames the place. It was a, a theophany, a, 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 an appearance of the presence of Christ. Then we, we go on and we see some scriptures in the Old Testament where we see Jesus revealed through the promises, where Christ is seen in the promises in the Old Testament. The word Christ comes from a Greek word, Christos. It's synonymous with the word Messiah from the Hebrew. So Christ and Messiah, basically it means the chosen one, the anointed one. And so through the prophets and through the prophecies in Old Testament, God is promising, I'm going to send you an anointed one my chosen one, and he's going to come. The Christ, the Messiah will come to redeem people and draw people to myself. He's going to save you. And so he promises the Messiah, and these prophecies, we call them 
messianic prophecies. You'll see all throughout the Old Testament, they're pointing to this coming Messiah and these messianic prophecies. Now, how many of you guys have ever wondered, how, how do the people in the Old Testament, if you're saved by faith in Christ, how do the people in the Old Testament get saved if Jesus wasn't there yet? The answer is, he was there. He was there in the Old Testament. He was promised, revealed in these promises, and true faith, even for the Old Testament people, was always messianic faith. Trusting in the promises of what God has said, he is sending us a redeemer, a, a messiah. Right, you remember Jesus in, in John 8, 56, he's talking to some Pharisees, right? He says, remember your father Abraham from thousands of years ago? Here's what John 8, 56 says. He says, your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and he was glad. He rejoiced at the thought of my day, the day when the Christ comes. What did the scripture say in Romans chapter 4, verse 3? It says, the scriptures say this, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. In other words, the saying, Abraham was justified by his faith. Faith in what? Faith in the promises of God. Promises that, that God was going to bless specifically through the chosen one, the offspring of Abraham, the Messiah. And so we see him promised. And, and yet, you'll look at some verses in the, in the Bible and you'll see Christ patterned. So you see him present or you'll see him promised or you'll see him patterned. Right? In, in theology, there's a study that, that we call typology. It's the study of types. And type is from the word tupos in the Greek. And it, it, it's a picture of a mold or a pattern. And you could take this clay and put it in that mold. Or you take wax and put it in that pattern. And you'll all of a sudden have a new shape that takes on the exact shape of that pattern or mold. And that's a type, a tupos. And so when we're talking about biblical types, what we're talking about is in the, in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, there's these types given to us where it's resembling something or foreshadowing something to come in the future that resembles that type. For example, remember Genesis 6? The world is full of evil and wickedness, and, and God sends what? To cleanse the world. He sends a flood. He sends water to cleanse the world of its sin. That's a type, a pattern of baptism to come, where God says this is a symbol where water is going to wash away our sins. Remember in the book of Exodus in the Old Testament where during the first Passover, God said anybody who has the blood of the lamb posted on, on your doorpost, you have that blood of lamb covering you, and when my spirit comes and passes over, whoever is covered with the blood of the lamb, you will be spared and you'll be given your life. That's a pattern. That's a type of what was going to happen where one day people who are covered with the blood of the lamb are going to be saved and be given life. So those are types or patterns in the Old Testament. Well, Paul says in the New Testament that Adam is a type. He calls Adam the first man. The first Adam is a type of one to come. Jesus Christ, whom he calls the last Adam. Look what he says in Romans chapter 5, verse 14. He says, Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type, a tupas, of the one who was to come. And I gave to you in the NIV version as well, it says, Adam, who is a pattern of the one to come. And so what Paul is saying in the New Testament is that 
we see Jesus revealed way in the beginning in the Old Testament. And so that's where I want to take you guys to. I want to take you to the very beginning, to the book of Genesis. Genesis means the beginning. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. And I want to show you how Jesus was present, promised, and patterned, even in this one particular scripture. So, so we, sorry, would you write this down? Uh, Jesus was present in Genesis. <laughs> sorry, I'm like super distracted right now. Please do not look. But Pastor David is wearing a unicorn horn in the sound booth right now. I asked you guys not to look, and everybody looks. Everybody looks. I told you not to look, and that's exactly what was happening in the garden, right? God says, here's this tree. Here's this tree. Do not eat from it. And now they want to eat from it. That's what was going on. Look, look. Adam and Eve, I'm putting you in this perfect place called paradise. And you got everything, and it's yours. The, the, the river that runs through it, the, the gold of the ground, the bdellium and the onyx stones in the land, the birds of the heavens, the fruit of the trees, the animals of the field. It's yours to enjoy. All of it's for you including myself, and he gives them himself. The only thing that was missing in the garden was clothes, and it was all good. It was good and perfect, except Adam and Eve. There's this one tree next to the tree of, of life. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and it's not a bad tree because this is all paradise, but if you eat from it, you will know good from evil. Do not eat from it. And all of a sudden, there's this wrestle with the free will and, and Satan comes in and he tempts them at that very spot what happens they want what they're forbidden they want what they can't have they take what God said don't 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 take and immediately their eyes are open Genesis chapter 3 verse 7 says this Genesis 3 7 tells us then the eyes of both of them were open and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves in, together and made themselves loincloths. So all of a sudden, now I know that you're naked. And so am I. And this is shameful. Like, this is, this is wrong. Like, and so they're, they're filled with this guilt. And so they're now trying to cover themselves, trying to take actions to cover themselves, their nakedness, their shame, their guilt. Then what happens next in the story? I know a lot of you guys have heard the story. But what happens next? Could it be that we see the presence of Christ there in the garden? Because here's what verse 8 says. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So my question is, who was this Lord who was walking in the garden? Could it be the second person of the Trinity? The second person in the Godhead, talking about God the Son walking. And I don't know about you, I've always read this story, I've always thought of God's presence in the garden as some general presence, the omnipresence of God who is everywhere at all times, and that's how we experience him, right? But, but could it be that they actually experienced God in a, in a different way, in some physical form, some tangible presence? It wouldn't be out of the question, right, because this is paradise, they haven't yet experienced the curse of sin. So technically, they could actually be face-to-face -face with God and not die. Kind of like the angels in heaven who, who were in the presence of God. Here's Adam and Eve in their purity, 
And, and, and they have this ability, potentially. Some of us are thinking that's crazy that, that, that this could be Christ. But you think about the language here. What does it say that we just read in that verse? It says, the Lord walked with them. He's walking toward them. I don't know about you, but the last time I walked, that's a physical action. It's a physical action. And, and it says, he was walking in the cool of the day. And Hebrew scholars will tell you that's referring to a certain time in the day, either early in the morning hours or later at, at, at night when the sun was down. It was a specific time, as opposed to the fact that God is everywhere at all times. And then what do they do when they hear the Lord walking toward them in the cool of the day in the garden? He gets scared because he knows I'm going to get in trouble. So it says they hide themselves behind the tree. I don't know about you, but those are very physical and spatial terms. Like he's hiding behind a tree because he hears this voice coming toward them. Could it be the second person of the Trinity walking there in the garden? Some theologians say here in Genesis 3 is the first of several theophanies, appearances of God right there in the garden. And when I say theologians, I'm not talking about these no-name internet bloggers behind a screen name, Heaven Watcher 777, you know, coming up with these crazy theories. Have you ever heard of a guy named Jonathan Edwards? Famous reformer, Puritan, one of America's greatest and most important theologians. Here, here's what he said. He writes this. He says, when we read in sacred history what God did from time to time, towards his church and people, and how he revealed himself to them, we are to understand it, especially in the second person of the Trinity, talking about God the Son. When we read of God appearing after the fall, Genesis 3, in some visible form, we are ordinarily, if not universally, to understand it of the second person of the Trinity. And what Jonathan Edwards is suggesting is uh, an opinion shared by many church fathers, early church fathers, theologians, and reformers, that Christ was walking presently there in the garden, intimately fellowshipping with Adam and Eve in a way that we here have not yet experienced. And we experience the general omnipresence, God here at all times and all places. But there's something different there in that garden. So God, God present in the garden, Christ present in the garden, and that could be debated. I know that could be debated, but even if we're not sure on that, I, I guarantee you Christ is promised there in the garden. So would you guys write this down? Jesus was promised in Genesis. Jesus was promised in Genesis. When that New York City blackout happened on July 13th, 1977, I mentioned to you that one action, one flip of the switch started a hip-hop movement that influenced the entire world, every corner of the world. But you know what other good happened in the dark that day? Not, not a lot of good. Not a lot of good happens in the dark. See, because like I said, looters began to take opportunity to take whatever they could, anything and everything. And by the time the lights came back on, the power came back on 25 hours later, 1,616 stores had been destroyed 1,037 fires had been set. 3,776 arrests were made. A study showed that about $300 million in damage. $300 million in destruction. 
And that blows my mind. How could one small action, one wrong flip, cause such great catastrophe? And yet, as catastrophic as that blackout was on that day, that small slip, it only affected about 9 million people in the city of New York. Only 9 million. And I say only 9 million because that is nothing compared to the slip that took place in the garden. That sin that took place in the garden, the catastrophe that is brought upon all mankind for all of history, past, present, and future. Right? Because here's what happened. God's coming and he's walking in the cool of the day and he, he sees Adam and Eve hiding and he's God. He knows that they're there and he knows what they've done. And he calls them out and he says, why are you hiding? And here's what Adam says, Genesis 3, verse 10 to 13. Adam says, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He, God said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the, the, the woman you, you gave to me to be with me, she gave me the fruit, and I ate. No comment there. Verse 13. <laughs> then the Lord God said to the woman, what is it that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And so now there's this blame game going on. But listen, sin happened. And because of God's holiness and his purity, there has to be consequence for sin. And so now in the next verses from 14 to 19, God pronounces the curse of sin. And he addresses the man. He addresses the woman. He says these things will now happen, consequences. Like, for example, the women, when you give birth, Man, there's going to be severe pain in that. And that wasn't always supposed to be the case. Guys, dads, do you realize that, that suffering you experienced in that, that delivery room, that anxiety and that stress that you had, that they had it worse, and that's the curse of the sin, that they, they went through not just the, that, that nine months of, of pregnancy and the, and, and the burden that came with that, but that delivery and the, the time of recovery, that's a result of sin. And now in the relationship, there will be hostility, conflict at times, because the woman will now want to rule over the man, and, and men will yet dominate the woman, and there's this tension and conflict. And then when you want to just struggle to live and survive, it's going to be a struggle. You're going to have to toil, and you're going to agonize. And that's the result of the fall. Job, work wasn't supposed to be burdensome. I mean, how, mo how many of us love Monday mornings? How many of you are like, yes, I can't wait till tomorrow morning? No hands. What? No hands? It's because of sin. We, we agonize and, and we struggle and we stress out and we go into depression and we lose hair over my, my job and, and my security and, and my toil. And that's because of sin. And we will agonize and toil until the day we return to the dust. And that right there is the greatest significance, the greatest consequence of this fall is that Men and women will now return to the dust. And that wasn't supposed to be the case. Death is now a thing. And Romans 6.23 tells us, what does it say? It says, for the wages of sin is death. That's physical death here on earth, and it's spiritual death there in hell. That's, that's a reality now. And it wasn't supposed to be like that. Death is a thing. Life is no longer guaranteed. Man, you remember that, that uh, 
that day, 1969, I don't remember it, but I heard about it. 1969, when man man first stepped on the moon, and was Neil Armstrong famously quoted as saying? He says, that's one small step for man. That's one giant leap for mankind. Well, that day when man stepped over the line in the Garden of Eden, that was one small slip for man, one giant consequence for mankind. Now everybody's affected. And there God pronounces the consequence of sin. He reveals the consequence of sin, but here comes the promise of Christ. This is the greatest verse in this chapter. Genesis 3.15 says this, God now turns to Satan and, and, and addresses him and curses Satan. He says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And what God is giving to us right here in the very beginning of the Old Testament, right here in the first book of the Bible is our first promise of a redeemer. He's saying that, that from this woman is come is going to come this seed, this offspring, namely Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity. And he's going to come, and there's going to be clear hostility between Satan and this woman's offspring, between Christ and Satan. And Satan, yeah, you're going to strike his heel. You will. But the promise is he will crush your head. He will crush your head. The word used for strike can be translated in the Hebrew as bruising. Satan, you're going to bruise Christ's heel. And that's foreshadowing Christ's death on the cross. That's going to be a bruise to him. But here's the point that God is making. Here's the point about bruised heels. They heal. Here's the point about bruised heels. Bruises heal. Meaning they're not final, nor are they fatal. (laughs) When I turned 18, my 18th birthday was probably the worst birthday of my life. Because my, my, my best friend at the time, Dean, um, he came home from, he came to my home from work one day. Uh, he, he was working a shift at Kelly's. If you remember Kelly's at Rolling Hills Plaza, and he, it was like late at night. He comes home to my house, and there I am, and he, he comes in, and he gives me my gift. And it's like this whole box of my favorite appetizer, fried calamari. I had, like, the tartar sauce and the lemon and the cocktail sauce. And he says, here, enjoy. And so I'm eating up this fried calamari, every last, last bit of calamari. He's watching me, and he's watching me enjoy this. And as I eat my last piece of calamari, he's like, all right, get up. It's time for your birthday gift. And for all my friends in high school, this is just what we did. When it was someone's birthday, on their birthday, you gave them a punch for every year that they were celebrating. That, that's just what we boys did in high school. And so for the next two hours, I received 18 punches from Dean. And you're doing the calculations in your head. Why in the world is it taking two hours? I'm telling you, it took more than two hours. Why? Well, because my friend Dean, he was a black belt Hapkido instructor member of the West High Wrestling Team. This guy was a fighter, so every punch, he gave it all he had, and here I am, I'm standing in my room, I'm ready, all right, give me my 18, and he's here, and literally every punch, he took a running start, boom, and I would go falling, collapsing to the floor, and I'd be rolling on the floor. It'd take like five, six minutes to get back up. No joke, five, six minutes, I get back up, and he steps back again. All right, number two. 
boom, and I would fall. And, and I kid you not, we were like laughing hysterically this whole time. We we're laughing like, <laughs> inside, I'm like, <laughs> like, right? Like, I'm like, this is so painful. It was so bad that I couldn't do it all on one arm. I said, take turns, Dean. And so we went back and forth, left and right, left and right. And it took over two hours because most of the time I was on the floor trying to get myself up. I kid you not, the next day I go to school, both my arms from beyond my shoulder blade to beyond my elbow, it was black. Not, not splotchy, not, black, not, not blue and purple, black, one solid black. The blood had spread, wrapped around both my arms. They were swollen like this. And it looked like I went to school with two bowling balls attached to my arms. And I'm telling you, I was immobile. I couldn't pick up my backpack. I couldn't pick up my pen. It was just boom, like that. Painful. But you know what? You know what happened to those bruises? They're gone. And it only took two and a half months. <laughs> but, but they're gone. That's what bruises do. They heal. They're not final. I could show you now, and they're gone. And, and that's the point. You're going to strike. You're going to bruise Christ's heel. You're going to think that, 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 that you got him when you, you got him into the grave. But he will crush your head when he rises from the gra grave. Why? Because three days later, the grave will be empty. The bruise will heal. Christ will overcome. And Satan, you will be defeated. He will crush your head. Amen? Okay, let's praise God. Let's do that. That's praiseworthy. That is this promise that we have. Sin and death, the ultimate schemes of Satan. And one day Satan himself will deal the blow of Christ because of the cross. It will be final and it will be fatal for him. This is the promise revealed to us right here in Genesis. The offspring of Eve, Jesus Christ himself, will come according to the promises of God. This is God's plan from the beginning. I want to show you one more thing. I want to show you Jesus revealed through the pattern there in Genesis. Would you guys write this down? Jesus was patterned in Genesis. Jesus was patterned. Because, look, after Adam and Eve sinned, what did they do? It says that they tried to cover up their nakedness and their shame and their guilt with fig leaves. And they're trying desperately to deal with their, their own sin. Now, how many parents in here, when you had kids growing up, how many of your kids would do like the cutest things ever, right? And, and that you would see them try with everything they have, put all their effort into something, and it's super cute. But then in reality, you realize it fails miserably. Like, really, it falls short, right? My son Evan, he wrote a sermon for me to use one day. It is cute. Yeah, no, it's really cute. And, and he, I guess he's trying to be my ghostwriter or something as if my sermons aren't good enough. And like, so he wrote me a sermon called Anger. And here's the actual, it's so cute. I took a picture of it. I wanted to show you guys. This is from my son Evan for me to preach. I'll read it for you. If you can't read it, it says this on anger. So you know this church, I want it to grow stronger and more people to come here, right? But what if that doesn't happen? Then would you guys get mad? If that did happen, I would get so mad. Do you, know, do you want to know why? Because I'm a pastor here, and I want to teach more people about God, right? But I've got angry a couple times in my life. Like when Karis bees mean to me, <laughs> throws his sister under the bus. <laughs> and like when I shoot the basketball in the hoop, I miss. 
Well, James 1.19 says everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Isn't that cute? Yeah, give it up for Evan. That's a great, 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 great effort. That's a great attempt. But it fails. It falls short. I can't preach this. Like if I, literally, if you came next week at 11, 30, 10.30 a.m. and I preach this, I'll start at 10.30 and end around 10.30, right? And you'd be like, that's it? That's why I got all pretty this morning and, and did my hair and brought myself out of bed to go to church for this? Give me more. Give me more, Greg. It's cute. It's a great effort, but it falls short. And it's kind of what God must have been thinking when Adam and Eve are trying to cover up their own sin with fig leaves, these, these cute fig suits. And he's like, that's cute, but it's not enough. It fails. How do, how do I know that? Look at verse 21, Genesis 3, 21. It says, and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. So what does he do? God removes their cute little fig suits and reclose them with animal skin. I'm wondering why in the world is the animal skin more suitable than the fig leaves? Is it because fig leaves are itchy and uh, irritating and, and animal skin's not? Is it that animal skin's more durable and lasts longer and fig leaves just wither? Is it because the fig leaves don't quite conceal you totally and skin does? I don't think that's, that's why God did that. See, I think the skin was a pattern, a pattern for things to come. See, it's not so much about what material was used. It's about what life had to be sacrificed, what life had to be given up. Some animal had to lose his life. Blood had to be shed. In order for God to provide a sufficient covering made of skin, some creature had to lose its life. Later on in the book of Leviticus, what does it tell us? It tells us that life is in the blood of the creature. That without blood, you got no life. You lose your blood, you're dead. And then in Hebrews 9.22, what does it tell us? Hebrews 9.22, I'll put it up. It says, indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And so what God is doing here in the very beginning is he is, he is creating for us a pattern. He's setting a pattern for us here in Genesis for what needs to happen if sins are to truly be forgiven. Life for life, the, de the death of one in order for another to experience life. And he's setting up for us the gospel. He's setting up the pattern and, and the stage for the true and living gospel. See, Adam and Eve sin, and the wages of their sin is death, and, and they try desperately in their own efforts to, 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 to try to cover up and, and deal with the sin themselves, and yet fig leaves fall short fig leaves fall short they were never going to do it and God showed them that it's going to require life to be taken for life to be given and yet the skin of the animals was only a pattern it was not the solution it was only a pattern not the solution because even God knew that animals and the blood of animals would never quite be enough either that it would take something so much greater, blood, so much more sufficient. I want to close with one illustration. Um, in 2006, I, I, I was tutoring a middle school boy named Jonathan, 
And like a lot of middle school boys, Jonathan hated to do homework. He hated math and science. And so I was hired by his mom to tutor him to help go through his homework. And so every time I'd come over, he'd take out his homework planner. I'd find the assignment for the day, and I would just help him through his homework. But he hated it. So this one day, I'll never forget this one day, I show up to his house, I knock on the door, and Jonathan opens the door, and he sees me, and in a quick panic, he runs, he grabs his backpack, he runs into his bathroom, and he locks the door. And he's just in there for a long time. I'm like, what's he doing in there? And so I'm getting suspicious, I think he's trying to run up the clock, and so I go and I listen through the door, and... I don't hear any natural human activity going on. It's very quiet in there. So after a while, I started knocking on the door. I said, Jonathan, come out here. Come out. We got we to do your homework. And finally, he opens the door and he comes out. And he has this defeated look on his face. Just defeated like he got beat in battle. I said, give me your homework planner. Let's see what your homework assignment is. And he opens up his backpack and he takes out his planner. And this is his actual planner. I, I took it as a keepsake. And uh, I said, let's see what your assignment is for the day. And I, and I, and I turn it to the day. And when I, when I see the assignment for that day, I start laughing. And I now realize what he was trying to do in the bathroom. He was trying so desperately to cover up what he didn't want me to see. And he figured if I could just cover up my homework assignment, I don't have to do it. Greg won't know what my homework assignment is, and so he's trying to cover it up. But the reason why he looked so defeated was he had nothing to cover it up with. The only thing, I kid you not, the only thing he had in his backpack that day, like all middle school boys, they have nothing prepared, was a green highlighter. <laughs> and so he, he's still desperate, and he still tried to cover it up as, as hard as he could. All it did was highlight it for me to see. I said, boy, you better turn to page 346, 1 to 22. I'll do your homework, boy. And so there he is, things flying all over the place. And, and so he's all, uh, he's all grumpy and he's doing his work. Man, I kid you not, I kid you not. Like a few sessions later, I, same thing, I go, I go to his house, knock on the door. It's like deja vu. He opens the door, he sees me. He grabs his backpack and he runs to the bathroom and he locks the door. I'm thinking, are you kidding me? Are we doing this again? Like, do you know who I am? You can't hide from me. We're, we're doing this again. And so he's in the bathroom. I'm like, Jonathan, get out here. Come on, we've got to do your homework. This time he comes out. This time he's got a big smirk on his face. <laughs> big smile, like he just won. So Jonathan, give me your homework planner. He proudly pulls it out, hands it to me, and I turn to the day. Okay, let's see what your assignment is. And uh, <laughs> I start laughing. Because I, I, I see what he was doing in there. This time he, 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 this guy's evolving. This Neanderthal is evolving. He's getting smarter, right? Because he came prepared, and this time he packed in his backpack a black Sharpie, a permanent marker. So while he's in the bathroom, he's like, he's like uh, trying to cover up his pre-algebra assignment. And I take it. I said, Jonathan, give me that. And so, so here, here it is. But I look through it. I go, dude, I can see right through this. <laughs> Right? How many people know that ballpoint pen and permanent marker is two different inks? And so I, it kind of shines, and, and I put it to the, I can see, I don't know if you can see it, I see it right there, page 352, 1 through 24 even. Do your homework, boy. And so like, and here he is once again, he's defeated. And I'm sitting here, I'm thinking to myself, I can't believe this kid. I used to be a middle school boy. I know all your tricks. And I'm thinking there, like, there's nothing you can do to hide from me. There's nothing you can do to cover up what you don't want me to see. 
So as I'm sitting there, I'm thinking, what would I do? What, what are you going to try to do next? You, you going to put masking tape over it? No, I just peel that right off. You going to put whiteout on it? No, I'll just scratch that right off. There's nothing you can do to hide from me. But then I thought about it. I said, actually, I think there is something you could do. Put the picture back up. I said, actually, if you take the same kind of ink and you take a ballpoint pen and you cover a ballpoint pen, I think it'll actually work. And so I tried it. I wrote a bunch of numbers right under that, and I tried it, and I covered up with ball. I'm like, I don't even know what I just wrote. Like, it sufficiently covered it from my sight. I don't know what's there. And I thought in that moment, I said, what a beautiful picture of what God has done for us. Right, because our own attempts, fig leaves, it'll never do. Sometimes we try things, and it's foolish. It just highlights it for people to see. Animal skin, the blood of animals, it'll never do. I think God realizes the only thing that will sufficiently cover your sins from his sight is the same thing, the blood of a man, but not a sinful man, a perfect man. His blood for ours, life for life, one man for all mankind. And so that was his plan. God's removal of the fig leaves and covering with the life of another in Genesis was a pattern to set the stage for Christ to come, the Messiah, whose perfect blood will one day perfectly cover our sins. I've always wondered, how's that, how's that fair? How Adam and Eve's mess up messes it up for me. How Adam and Eve's mess up messes it up for all mankind. Why does one man's mistake bring sin and death to the entire world? And I see God's heart and his plan from the beginning that one man's death one man's blood, his sacrifice would bring life and hope to the entire world. I want to show you one last verse, and I pray that this brings worship to our hearts. Romans chapter 5, verse 18 and 19 says this. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man, Adam, his disobedience to many were made sinners, so by the one man's. Jesus' obedience, the many will be made righteous. When Adam slipped, that one small slip was one great consequence for mankind. But when the last Adam died on the cross, that one slip in history was one giant solution for eternity. Praise be to Jesus. Amen? Amen. And would you guys bow your heads with me? And as we respond in worship, I want to give you guys an opportunity right now to come before God because I realize there's people in here maybe for the first time or you've been coming for a while that that you realize you got sin in your life and some of the things we've been trying to cover up and deal with and it's just it's falling short in fact sometimes it just highlights it for everyone to see and some of us have sins in our life where you feel like maybe you've dealt with it permanently. No one will ever see this. It's hidden. No one will ever find out. I just want to say God sees all things. He's God. But God sees that you are his and, and he created you and he wants you. And so he gave you the blood of his son. He gave you Christ so that your sins would be covered. And he rose from the dead so that your sins would be conquered. 
and you can have new life in him. The Bible says you believe in that by faith, you have the gift of the life. So I wanna, I wanna pray, I wanna invite you to pray this with me. Whether it's your first time or you've, you've prayed this prayer before, confess your sins to God and ask for God to now come into your life to forgive you, to help you repent and turn from your sins and experience the promise of new life. You have, you pray this by faith, you know you have life for eternity. So I'll pray out loud, pray something like this sincerely as if you're talking to God yourself. God, I thank you so much for revealing to me that I sin. God, you know what they are. You've seen it. But God, right now I ask that the blood of Christ would cover me and forgive me all my sins. Today and all the sins I'll commit from this day on. But Lord, I pray that you would help me not to sin. I pray that you would come and be my savior, but also be my Lord, so that I would walk in your ways in obedience to you. Help me to now live a new life with the promise of knowing that I will be with you for eternity, that I don't have to die spiritually, but I could have life spiritually. So Lord, I invite you to come and and lead me Give me the strength to follow. And even though I don't know all things about the Bible, help me to keep learning from this day forward so I can know more and more about you and your love for me. And so God, I thank you. We worship you with all our hearts and with our voices because you are so worth it. Thank you for showing us Jesus. Open the eyes of our hearts. We want to see Jesus lifted high. We pray this in Jesus' name.